0: Welcome back to the Policy Viz Podcast. I'm your host, John Schwalbisch. And on this week's episode, we're again going to focus on open data, government technology, civic technology, innovation in government. And to help me understand some of these terms and some of these concepts and what's going on elsewhere in the world, I'm very excited to have on the show George Johnston, who's the founder of Nitrous, which is a firm based in London that's facilitating innovation in the public sector there in the UK and uh, starting elsewhere in the world. So George, welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, John. Great to be here. Yeah, very well. Thank you. Very well. Good, good. Rainy in London these days? Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's on top (laughs) form. Well, I want to talk about government tech and civic tech and open data. um, But maybe we can start by having you tell folks a little bit about yourself and a little bit about Nitrous, the group that you founded, and what it is you and your team is doing in London. Sure, yeah.
1: So I guess I started my journey um, back in a company called Huddle. Uh, which back in the day, four or five years ago, was the, uh, I guess the enterprise um, B2B success story um, of, of the London tech team. Uh It unfortunately had a very poor exit recently, um, so this is kind of bad timing to, to bring up my origin story. Uh, but uh, essentially at Huddle, they were selling into um, large government, uh, which was very brave for a, a UK SME um, four or five years ago. Uh, so I learned very quickly um, some of the collaboration issues as well as opportunities with dealing with UK government and particularly spent a lot of time working on the, the g framework, uh, which we can talk about a bit later, um, which is a, a really cool cool thing. Um, I set up uh, Nitrous uh, to essentially bridge that gap between growing, scaling SMEs who had a real value proposition for government and, of course, government as a very large in some cases, a bureaucratic organization, like really struggling to grab hold of some of the great tech out there and ultimately uh, deliver that ROI to, um, to taxpayers.
0: Interesting. So can you tell me a little bit about the open data scenario or situation in the UK? Because I'm sort of familiar with it in the US and, and a lot of it is driven by local cities and local governments, but I'm not familiar with what's happening in the UK. So can you talk a little bit about What's happening with open data and open tech in, in the UK?
1: Yeah, so uh, I think probably the last three years or so, it's been really on the agenda. Mm-hmm. And one of the great uh, examples of open data is probably with TFL, so Transport for London. Uh, and this is London's transport authority. And so on a city level, uh, the previous mayor, uh, Boris Johnson, uh, had a big mandate for, for TFL to release as much open data as they could. Uh, And essentially, I mean, that was stimulated from what was a cost savings, efficiency uh, kind of environment where uh, instead of spending a lot of money on big innovation projects, uh, local government had to look at how can we engage the developers, the innovators, the data scientists, the startups that sit outside of our organization to help deliver better public services. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, they have a very strong open data policy, uh, having, I think, released now and have over 100 individual data sets uh, which are available via an endpoint online and uh, the uh, local uh, government, so you have the mayor's office known as the Greater London Authority here in London, uh, now taking um, a leaf out of, of, of TfL's book and developing uh, its own uh, London data store uh, which essentially will be a, a hub hopefully to bring together uh, all of the different data sets to do with uh, city living. So from garbage pickup uh, to transport to energy uh, and maybe to social services like paying your bills online, uh, accessing your, um, your government services all online. So yeah, it's a new, it's a new time for, for, for London's data.
0: Interesting. Are you seeing similar sorts of evolutions elsewhere in other cities around the country or is it really primarily focused in London?
1: Yes, elsewhere in the country, um, there's some uh, great initiatives happening uh, in cities like Manchester. Uh, You also have uh, an area called the West Midlands, uh, uh, and the West Midlands Combined Authority, uh, which essentially is kind of the uh, collection of local councils or boroughs uh, or towns in this area that are looking to join together to develop a joint open data strategy. And you see in the UK... A lot more of that, where you have individual uh, areas um, surrounding cities, uh, which we call boroughs, coming together to set policy a lot more collaboratively, uh, just, I guess, because of the scale of that location. Uh, you also have things called catapults in the UK. Uh, these are kind of government-funded organisations uh, modelled on some of the uh, German education institutions to fund and to support certain Areas of public sector focus. And we have one that is dedicated to future cities, uh, which has a, a test bed uh, in Milton Kings uh, alongside Horizon 2020, so an EU funding project to look into autonomous vehicles and to look into uh, the data implications associated with that. So, so, so lots going on elsewhere in the country, but London is certainly leading.
0: Right, right. Really interesting. Um, on the Nitrous website, it talks about government tech and civic tech. Can you talk about what those two terms mean to you and, and what are they as concepts?
1: Sure. There's a lot of buzzwords out there. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> yeah. No, not in, the, not in the data field. Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean, it is like another language. And, and I remember when I first came to it, um, it was mind-boggling. Uh, but you find often the scale of disruption that technology is playing, uh, you hear lots of verticals having tech slapped at the end of them. So you've heard of probably FinTech, the financial services disruption, or MadTech, for media and advertising. Essentially, as I said in the public sector innovation space, the two main ones are GovTech and civic tech. There is a broad uh, range of definitions, but I think the best I'd be able to come up with is... GovTech essentially looks at the back office. It's looking at how can you bring to the table uh, exciting, separate agnostic B2B startups that can sell into government and therefore often go through a procurement process, which has its own trials and tribulations, which we we talk about, um, but essentially to be procured in to solve, innovate a back office function like maybe uh, the data Uh, Within an organization, increasing efficiency in uh, HR uh, or uh, a department such as accountancy or legal, providing maybe machine learning tools uh, to handle things like uh, HR requests, uh, anything that can uh, improve cybersecurity of the firm uh, or generate an efficiency which therefore saves costs. Mm -hmm. And of course, in government, where it's very complex and very bureaucratic, there is a lot of opportunity to drive efficiency through these technologies. Right. That's GovTech. Okay. okay. And, and then CivicTech is then, if you flip that, and then you're looking at then the more sexy type of startups. You've probably heard of CityMapper, uh, which is a great, fantastic London success story. Those types of companies uh, are then looking at delivery of better services, the things that touch actual citizens. Uh, they're the B2C businesses. And and where you can't really procure those businesses or you can't develop those businesses in most government organizations, you can support them to then deliver better services to your citizens. Uh, And data is often a big part of that support.
0: And so we've had over the last few years an increase in the amount of data that we can get. Data is sort of easier to get. There's more tools. But – Has there been a big block from government being able to get more data out there? Like, is there a structural organizational barriers in just the way government is organized that hasn't allowed them to get this data out and then needs, you know, help from citizens and from startups and from smaller organizations rather than maybe big corporate cultures? And that's sort of a wide ranging question. But I guess at the core, the question really is, what is it about government that makes it hard to make data more accessible to the people that it affects?
1: I think uh, it all comes down to the the tools and the applications that are enabling this strategy. And often government procurement is, as it is such a large and complex organization, very disparate. uh, Therefore, procurement frameworks are isolated to certain government departments And uh, essentially, although it's a more democratic procurement process, you do have a very uh, disparate landscape of different tools and services. A box of Lego, as it was, popping out across London with all of these different tools and services that very often don't talk to each other. Mm. So I think it's very difficult to find a winning strategy when it comes to um, government when there are so many things and strategies happening at once. However, um, I think the most important thing is to understand when you're opening a data set, what is the ROI on doing it? Like, What is the case study of how this data is going to improve a service or deliver um, a better innovation for government? And there's a lot of data sets, um, which I'll be honest, are, are you know, kind, of, kind of useless. Um, I mean, essentially taken from static data dumps and cleaned up and put online, developers that we speak to, they can't really do much with it. Right. So there's a lot more work to be done in consulting startups, maybe through structured programs, speaking with citizens, data scientists, that sit outside of government to understand what is the data that you need rather than this is just the data that we have sitting around and it's easiest to pull out there and tick an open data box.
0: Right, right, right. And when you're working with government agencies, are you talking to the people that are on the front lines? You know, they are collecting the data, they're doing the analysis, because oftentimes I wonder if one of the barriers is that someone who's on the front line, they're working with some data set, they don't see the ROI to making that data more accessible. And so there's like multiple levels within any organization, but especially government, And so when you're working with government agencies, are you talking to people on the front line to try to make the case that open data is important for particular reasons?
1: Yeah, I think very often we're talking with um, uh, department specific tools. So people that sit within say the marketing function or people, for example, in Transport for London that sit specifically in the biking uh, or the cycle uh, function. So London has a very big public cycle bike scheme. Because in these individual departments, you need to understand what is the data they have available and then understand what are the applications that they need to be solving, where are the inefficiencies or the opportunities within their use cases. And then you try to link the two together. Mm. When you have a too broad data approach that maybe is too high within the organization, say a CIO or CDO level, so chief digital officer or chief information officer, Um, Sometimes the brief can be too large and you miss out a lot of very valuable data sets which are hidden within pockets within the business because they might not necessarily be a big service, but as a team, they are generating some really awesome data. So I think you have to bring those people to the table. You can't overlook them. Um, Those conversations can get very technical. They can get very focused on their specific area, but you have to have them to understand the
0: big picture. interesting so you've identified a few things already that are some of these barriers so there's the tools and the technology there's management and maybe the frontline folks are there other barriers that I haven't thought about that are not allowing government agencies to get those data out there
1: uh, I think so you you've discuss technology I think um, another area is the as I said ROI but uh, with ROI, they have to, you know, government has to spend money on uh, building the platforms or procuring the platforms to release this data. Mm-hmm. Um, how can government get more ROI out of its data sets? Often, innovating with data through third party startups, innovators, it has quite a long ROI, maybe a few years, so you can really see the benefit. Um, and in terms of short term opportunity, I think, um, and although it's controversial to, to say, monetizing data is definitely something overlooked and i'm not talking about necessarily monetizing the data itself Um, open data is open data and that should be respected but the ecosystem that sits around that data for example the platform where that data can be accessed potential tools services uh, or apps that sit within that platform or collaborative tools that allow developers to work together on that data that in my opinion, can be developed to provide value to these people. And that value can be charged. And that will allow government to um, politically and uh, ethically monetize open data better. And if we want to accelerate our open data strategies, then we need to apply more commercial thinking where it's appropriate um, to how we release open data.
0: That is really interesting. Can you give me an example of what it would mean for a government to monetize its open data without as you mentioned, without charging for access to the data. But, but what would a model of that look like?
1: I there's, different, there's different models. Uh, yeah. I mean, one, group, for example, could be uh, API throttling or more um, simple terms, it could be uh, like a SaaS model or um, say so software as a service or a freemium model. You have a certain amount of data, which is free, and that encourages innovators to get their hands on it However, when it gets to a certain point and you're using a certain amount of that open data and it gets to a commercial scale where you've probably raised funding and you can now afford it, why shouldn't you then be charged for then using that data, especially when you know, you're know you putting a lot of strain of resources onto the government platforms that are then uh, deploying that data? Uh, the other model, uh, and, and that still requires some um, political debate, or well, I think quite a lot, because... Essentially, you are still monetizing the data itself. Right, right. Uh, another model might be, what if you provide tools and services that are very valuable to these innovators that they will pay for? And those tools and services require that data to um, to be valuable. So one example is, uh, imagine a, a platform which has this data available for free. However, when you want to apply a cool natural language processing model to that data on this platform, or invite ten of your uh, teammates or developer buddies to come in and collaborate on that data. Then that's something maybe you have to pay for monthly as a membership. Mm-hmm. Um, these types of models, after um, talking with developers, um, they have shown that uh, they have shown interest and they do see the value. So I think that's something to be um, explored. Yeah.
0: That's really interesting. So in some ways, it's like upping the challenge of working with government, right? Because you are not only trying to encourage governments to be more open with their data, but you're also in some ways asking them to take on an additional sort of entrepreneurial task, right? Of creating a a marketplace, as it were, for people to purchase access to the data in, in, in some ways. So when you work with government agencies, how do you sort of sell that both of those things simultaneously? Or are you taking a real gradual approach to this? Yeah,
1: it is gradual. I think in the, in the first case, in, work, in working with government, you have to mitigate the risk as much as possible. To get your first pilot, to get your foot through the door that enables you to create that case study for you to scale, uh, you have to mitigate where possible. So, for example, going back to that previous example, uh, maybe your minimum viable proposition is just having that data available on a platform for everyone to use mm-hmm. to then prove value there maybe then it's time to try you know charging for a couple of services on the platform that people might like and then you might then say well this is working really well now let's do some api problem you really do have to uh, be careful with very big vision approaches and um, it is uh, a part of the culture you have to in government that you can't go in as um, this visionary entrepreneur and mix things up too fast. Um, if right. you want to deliver your vision, you do have to play um, within that culture.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so uh, before you wrap up, I want to ask what you see coming up next for GovTech, CivicTech, innovation in the public sector.
1: Yeah, I think there's lots of threats and opportunities. I think one of the threats is ensuring that uh, the government innovation space doesn't go the same way as the corporate innovation space. So essentially, uh, out-of-the-box innovation or accelerator uh, models um, or incubator models which are sold into these organizations to uh, create innovation. For example, um, I mean in the private sector,' we on from a tangent here, but in the private sector you have so many of these different corporate accelerators um, which sit there trying to attract the next big fintech, the next big Mad tech, the next big med tech idea. But the problem is is you can as a corporate in this space as the incumbent, you can never attract the best companies in that space, the true disruptors to work with you. The model is a complete paradox. So often these models they become essentially marketing campaigns or um, CSR opportunities. So to direct true innovation, you really do have to bring those true disruptors together with the incumbents. In government you can do this. In government you can, because government wants to attract its disruptors, and the best disruptors will come to government because government isn't profit motivated. It is not um, scared to work with its disruptors, um, and the disruptors aren't scared of being copied or snapped at by, um, by government. So in, in there lies that threat, but there is that opportunity. Um, I think the other thing is uh, that it's be much better focus and work on procurement frameworks. So we've talked a lot about the open data uh, B2C front office startups. However, for the back office, where the real cost savings are coming to come into government, when we can rip out the old Lotus notes and horrible SharePoint implementations <laughs> and make everyone love their jobs a bit better and, and, and yeah. create efficiency, we do have to improve the way the government procures these startups. Um, so a lot of the work that, that I'm doing is on procurement hacks. Uh, and, and this is a whole other conversation, but like procurement hack models to not circumvent, but to work within the current system that enable more um, SME procurement. Uh, And the UK government has a a strong mandate uh, over the last few years to have, uh, by 2020, one in three pounds of all procurement going to SMEs. So the landscape is very ripe for this here. But there does need to be policy changes um, at the top level um, because procurement hacks aren't sustainable in the long term. So I think that is a big thing uh, to look at as well. And, yeah, one to watch out for.
0: Really interesting. Well, I look forward to seeing what you and the rest of your Nitrous team does, and how open data evolves, uh, both in London and the UK, and all across the world. So, um, George, thanks so much for coming on the show. This has been uh, really interesting. Cheers, John. That's no, been really fun. Thank you. Yeah, and thanks to everyone for tuning into this week's episode. If you have comments or questions, please do let me know. And that's all we have for this week. So, until next time, this has been the Policy Viz Podcast. Thanks so much for listening.